Our passage this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 33 through 40. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you this the, this, the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Josh Hebman. I am the executive pastor here at Grace. And for those of you who are keeping track, uh, Brooks Simpson, our lead pastor, is still out. Uh, we did send out an email last week with an update from Brooks. And if you haven't seen that, I encourage you to check your email. Uh, there is a letter attached from Brooks, and he will be giving other updates as uh, he is able. Uh, but the general update is that he is making slow progress. Uh, he is doing some physical therapy, and so the pain is improving or reducing, um, and he is, is making some slow progress, but he is obviously still not back with us this week. So I uh, encourage you to pray for him, continue to pray for Brooks and for Stacy, for their whole family. Uh, before we get started this morning, I want to go back, there we go, and remind you uh, that we are doing something this fall called Bless the Schools. We want to encourage as many teachers and as many schools as possible, and so we encourage you, if you know a teacher, uh, to ask them, how can I be a blessing to you? If you know an administrator, or if you know um, a janitor, if you know anybody that works in the school system, we encourage you to reach out to them and bless them in any way that they know that they need. So if they say to you, uh, I could really use use somebody to volunteer in my class, or I could really use somebody to provide this thing for a, a student in my class, whatever it is, um, do that. And let us know at graceb3.org school. If you have a phone, you could take it out right now. You could go to that website so that you know what it is and you could do this later. Um, but we encourage you to do this. Um, you can also, if you don't have somebody that you know, you can let us know at that same website and we will pair you with a school. And you could also just give uh, to this fund and we'll be blessing teachers. Again, we want to serve as many as possible. We just want to show them the love of Christ this fall. So that is what that is all about. Uh, there are some cards outside by the door as you go out to remind you. If you have kids in uh, children's ministry, they'll get a card to remind you. We're really trying to remind you uh, that this is going on. So today we are going to continue in our Searching for Answers series. And before we get started on uh, the question for today, I want to ask you all a question, which is this. Are you happy with yourself? And are you content with your own kingdom? Have you thought about your life as a kingdom? This used to be pretty common, right? In America, we talk about um, men would have kings. Uh, I'm sorry, men would be kings of their own castle, right? And their castle was usually a house in suburbia with about 300 feet of grass around it. But we talk about ourselves this way as having kingdoms. Are you content with your kingdom? Are you happy with yourself? Anybody? Any volunteers? Nobody's happy with themselves? It's a bad day. I'm not happy with myself either. I understand. I know how that goes. 
Uh, I was not happy with myself significantly for about 20 years of my adult life. And it wasn't really until I was probably in my mid to late 30s that I felt like God had, had really helped me to understand what he enables me to have in him. But up until that point, I was significantly dissatisfied with all kinds of things about myself, about the way I looked, um, about my appearance, about my profession, all kinds of different things. And I would imagine that most of you have similar struggles because this is who we are as people. We're frail. We have problems with ourselves, with our world. And so we want to change. And that's the question that we're going to try and answer today. Where do I find power to change? And what do you, sus- what do you suspect? What do you suppose the answer is? Given that we're meeting in a church and I ask you, where do I find power to change? What do you think the, the answer is? It's not a trick question. I'm going to go ask children's ministry. They're going to tell me right off the bat. Jesus is the answer, right? If we don't tell you that Jesus is the answer and finding power to change, you shouldn't come here. So Jesus is the answer. That's where we're going for sure. But here's the question. If we know that, why, why aren't we able to change? Why are we still dissatisfied with our lives? Why do we look at our, our little kingdoms that we've built for ourselves and why are we so dissatisfied with them? It's because we put obstacles in the way. We, we get things in the way of Jesus. Um, first and foremost, we don't want to give him authority to change things in our lives. We, we're not really happy with him being the authority. We want to re- retain authority for ourselves. Another thing that we put in the way is we have priorities that we choose for ourselves that are not God's priorities. We say, God, you got to do this one first, you got to do that one next, and this is the most important, right? We have priorities that are not his priorities. And then finally, the power over change that he has isn't really a power that we want. Even though we know that he is the answer to that question, he's not the power that we want. So we're going to talk about those two obstacles that we put in the way and the sort of dissatisfaction we have with his power. And hopefully we're going to find out how we can get rid of those obstacles through relying on him. So let's pray and then we'll talk about authority to change. God, I thank you for this morning. Um, I do pray for Brooks and for Stacy, and pray that you continue to heal Brooks and bring him back here soon. Uh, Lord, we continue to pray for all of the men and women, Lord, who are uh, just in trouble and in turmoil in Haiti right now, especially the missionaries who have gone missing, but also just the people, Lord, who live there day in and day out and who struggle uh, with gang warfare and with violence, uh, with all of the things, Lord, that make their lives uh, just almost impossible. We pray that you would show yourself faithful and powerful and that you would act in that place. God, be present in this place, too, with us here now, we ask in your name. Amen. So the reason we're looking at this conversation between Jesus and Pilate and talking about power for change is because this is a really good opportunity to see how Jesus responds to somebody who's in authority, has power, and and having a conversation about power. So Pilate, for those of you who don't know, Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea when he's having this conversation with Jesus. And the governor of Judea, uh, Judea rather, is a province in Rome. And this is the beginning, this is the context for you, right? This is the beginning of the Pax Romana, this period of peace in Roman history. You have uh, Caesar Augustus, is the first Roman emperor, and then Tiberius, who appoints Pontius Pilate, is next. And Tiberius, he comes to power in sort of the, the, the way that you're likely to see power struggles in kingdoms, where uh, Caesar Augustus has sons that die, and then grandsons will be his heirs, and they die. And then finally, Tiberius, who appoints Pontius Pilate, he comes to power as the son-in-law of the emperor. And so Pilate is very aware of what it means to have this power struggle, right? He knows. That's how he came to power, how he became governor of Judea, because the guy who appointed him went through that. So he's, he's thinking about these things. And he asks Jesus this question, are you the king of the Jews? Because he wants to know, 
Who am I dealing with here? What's, what's the power relationship that I'm supposed to have with this individual? And Jesus asks him, do you say this of your own accord? Do you believe that I'm a king? Or has somebody else told you that I am? And then Pilate deflects, right? He doesn't want to give any indication that he thinks Jesus is one thing or another. And he says, well, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And so then he tries to turn it and make it about what Jesus is accused of. But that question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer, do you say this of your own accord? That should sound familiar to you because Jesus often turns the conversation and asks his disciples, asks people who follow him, who do you say that I am? He asks Peter this question, and Peter's response famously is, you are the Christ, right? You are the Messiah. You're God's chosen one, and that's the right answer. That's why Jesus is where we find power to change. But we don't always respond that way, do we? When Jesus asks you this question, like he's asking Pilate, what do you say about me? Do you say this of your own accord? Do you say that I'm the king? Often we respond with, no, actually, I'm the king. Right? I have a kingdom that I want, that I've built, that I prefer. So Jesus asks us this question, and when we answer that way, when we say, no, this is my kingdom, I want to be in control here, I want to have authority over change, we're setting ourselves in opposition to Christ and the change that he would do in our lives. Because there can only be one king. God's design is that there would only ever be one king, and it's him. In the giving of the law, uh, God says, I am going to bring you into this place. I'm going to give you a kingdom. He says this to the Israelites. And he says, I'm going to make you a nation, a kingdom of priests, and I'm going to be the king. But I know what your heart is like. I know that you're going to want to be kings anyway. And so you're going to ask me for a human king. You're going to ask me for a, a king that lives on this earth because I know that you're stubborn and I know that you don't recognize my authority. And so he says, here are some laws to govern that. Here's what that should look like. So God knows where, where their heart is. He knows what it's going to be like. But still, right, they, they lord themselves over others. They make themselves to be kings. But look at the examples that God gives us of what his relationship, his desired relationship with uh, saviors is. Because ultimately, a king is somebody who can provide salvation, right? A king is somebody who can ensure that you get what you want throughout all of life. Not just give you uh, goods and uh, make sure that you have a home, but make sure that you're protected, that you're safe. So here are the people that save in the Bible. Noah is somebody who saves in the Bible, right? All of humanity is saved through Noah in the flood story. Is Noah a king, though? Who's the king in that relationship? It's still God. Noah is a servant. Noah gets a boat. He doesn't get a castle. He gets a boat full of animals. And then at the end of Noah's story, uh, he plants a vineyard, right? He praises God. Thank you, Lord, for this salvation. And he plants a vineyard. He becomes a man of the earth. And then he drinks too much wine. and He gets drunk. And that's kind of the end of Noah's story. He doesn't end in glory. He ends as a human ends, right? He's, he's a failure, not a failure because he failed to serve God. He did serve God, and God glorifies himself through Noah. But the scripture is not holding up Noah as a king that we should honor, even though he does get to participate in this salvation. Likewise, Moses. Moses gets to participation in the salvation of Israel. He gets to participate in the salvation, but he's not a king like we think of a king either. Even though he gets uh, raised by Pharaoh's daughter in a kingly sort of fashion, he is not a king. 
And in fact, he has to go and spend 40 years as a shepherd in, in Midian in the wilderness before he gets to lead Israel. And then he doesn't even end up going into the promised land. So it's not like those examples. And we can look at others in scripture, even Saul, who is called to be the king of Israel, right? They don't end in glory for the human because God has designed it so that he is the one who's king always. That's his plan. Not us, not any other person who can offer salvation, but himself. So they have this conversation. It keeps going. And Pilate says, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is actually not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate says, so you are a king. And he tries to bring it back to that power relationship. So you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Right? So now we've got this established. Yes, I am in fact a king. But for this purpose was I born, and for this purpose have I come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Earlier in John, Jesus famously says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he's bearing witness to the truth by speaking it, but he's also bearing witness to the truth by just living it. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate says to him, what is truth? Is that because Pilate doesn't actually know what truth is? No, Pilate knows what truth is. Pilate is a governor. He is a uh, a Roman who is of the upper classes, which means that there's dozens of virtues, right? If you're part of the Roman upper crust, the upper class, there's all these virtues that you're supposed to exemplify in your life. Truth, veritas in Latin is one of them. And Pilate knows what truth is, but he doesn't want to recognize what truth is here because he wants to think of himself still as a king. Even though he's acknowledged that Jesus is a king, right? Jesus got him to do that. He still wants to be the one picking the priorities, setting the course of action, controlling the situation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. And he says, for this purpose was I born and I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate's like, yeah, I reject that. I don't want that. I want to choose. I want to pick the priorities. And again, Jesus does the same thing with us. Even though he's doing it with Pilate here, we know that he does it with us. Think about through the Gospels, when people come to Jesus and they say, you know, how must I live? How must I act? He's always giving them parables. He's always giving them examples. I want to read to you one um, that is a description of the kingdom of heaven. This is Matthew chapter 18, if you have a Bible and want to go there. But in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives this description of what his priorities are and of what it means to bear witness to the truth. This, this story will be familiar to a lot of you. Uh, Peter comes to Jesus and says, this is uh, 18 verse 21, Matthew 18, 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times. But Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had so that payment could be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Yet he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. 
And so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. That's God's priority. That's his desire for power over change that we would forgive. That's what he wants to prioritize. That's what his kingdom is like. Pilate is interested in forgiving Jesus. We're going to see here in just a minute that he's going to look for ways to get Jesus off the hook. But Pilate's interested in his own skin, ultimately, right? Pilate is responsible for collecting taxes. And if there is a disturbance in Judea, he can't collect taxes. And then his job and his life is forfeit. And so he's thinking about needful things, things of the day, things right now and here. And Jesus is thinking about the salvation of everybody. And so Jesus knows that a different kingdom is needed, a different set of priorities is needed than the one that Pilate is working with. What are those priorities? Let's turn back in Matthew, just a few chapters here. Uh, We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus tells us what these priorities are. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. For if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The priorities that Jesus has in mind, even now, even in this situation where he and Pilate are talking about ultimately Jesus' death, the priorities he has in mind are eternal priorities. And our, 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 our tendency, our desire is to prioritize just here, today, those things that he listed. What will we eat? What will we wear? Where will we live? That's what we want to focus on. If you have kids, I know that you have been tempted to focus on your children's education. Yeah? What will we teach them? How will we raise them? What will, what will they do? How will they succeed in life? And maybe if you were, anybody been a child? Anybody? That's a trick question. I was never a child, actually. Um, my parents can attest to that. I was born at 40. Um, in, in all reality, right, we are concerned about our kids and about their education, and so we plan for the needful things. We want to make sure they go to schools where they're taught well. We want to make sure there are opportunities for them. I spent nine years teaching and administrating. And then I spent another seven and a half years at ACT working on a college admissions test. And so I spent a good chunk of my life devoted to helping kids get to college, talked to lots and lots of parents who were very concerned about getting their kids to college. Lots of Christian parents were very concerned about getting their kids to the right college with the right opportunities and not nearly as concerned about salvation for their kids. Really not. If you were to ask their kids, what are, your, what are your parents concerned about for you? Their kids would say, well, they want to make sure I go to a good college and get a good job so I can have money and provide for my family. And Jesus asks in Mark 6, what happens if you gain the world but you forfeit your soul? What if your priorities are out of whack? I think our priorities are out of whack, like, like Pilate. Right? Pilate is focused on right here and right now, and Jesus is saying, focus on what is eternal. 
because what is eternal is what matters. So the story goes on. Jesus and Pilate keep talking. And now we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to have power over change in the way that Jesus wants us to have power over change. Because if we give him authority, right, if we say, okay, you can be king, and I'll even accept your list of priorities, now we also have to accept the sort of change that he wants to implement. And that's going to be hard for us because we're not necessarily going to want the change that he wants to give us. Here's what he says. Uh, Pilate, after he had said this, what is truth, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. Remember, I said he's going to try and get Jesus off the hook now. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber, a conspirator, somebody who tried to lead a rebellion. The Jews say, give us that guy. And this is in chapter 19. This is sort of the wrap-up of the conversation that Jesus and Pilate have. Pilate sends Jesus to be beaten, right? Uh, he has the crown of thorns put on him, a purple robe put on him to mock him. And he's brought back into Pilate. And the Jews answer uh, Pilate saying, we have a law, according to that law, Jesus ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So Pilate wants now to salvage this situation, not necessarily to save Jesus, but to salvage this situation. And he says, where are you from? You said your kingdom is not of this world. What does that even mean? You said that you're here for truth. What, what are you talking about? Just tell me straight up what's going on here because I'm, I'm trying to save this. He says, don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And look at where Jesus takes the situation. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus isn't thinking about his own life. Jesus knows that he has to die. That's God's plan. He knows that even if Pilate were to get him off right now, he would still have to die because that's how God wanted to save us by sacrificing himself. So Jesus is not concerned about saving himself in this moment. Instead, he says, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He goes to the heart of Pilate and he says, you have sin in your life. So you're thinking about changing this scenario, this situation, and making it better for you so that you don't have to worry about right now. And I'm telling you, you have sin in your heart. You're not right with God. Let's deal with that. That's the issue here. Do you guys remember the story of uh, Jesus being in a house teaching and uh, some friends have a lame friend that they, they lower down through the roof. It's a famous Bible story, right? If you were ever in a Sunday school class, there was a flannel graph, perhaps, and some people coming through a roof. It's very exciting. Maybe you did a coloring page, right? It's a popular Bible story. And in that story, Jesus does heal the man who's lower down uh, through the roof. But what does he say first? He says to him, your sins are forgiven, Right? He forgives the man's sins because that's the man's real need. He's lame. He can't walk. He's being carried around by his friends and let down through roofs. Right? He can't go where he wants to go. But his real need is sin. And that's Pilate's real need. And that's our real need is sin. So the power over change that we need is power to change the sin in our lives. That's not what we're looking for, is it? We're looking for new houses, new jobs. We're looking to, to look a different way or to sound a different way or to have different friends. We're not looking for God to heal us, to heal our souls, but that's what's needed, and that's where Jesus goes with Pilate. He says, this is what you need. You need power to change the sin in your life. Where are we going to find power to change? Well, we need a king. We need someone to exercise supreme authority over us, and this is not PC. This isn't kosher. This isn't what the world wants to hear. No one is going to tell you in the world that you need a king. They might tell you that you get to be king, that you get to decide for yourself, but they're not going to say you need a king. 
This is an idea that's completely out of fashion politically. There aren't many kings ruling or queens ruling in any other parts of the world, right? We're all uh, democracies or dictatorships for the most part, but kings are kind of out of fashion. And yet we need a king. We need a supreme authority in our life who knows what's right and good for us if we want to have power to change in our life. And we need a prophet, someone to speak the truth. Jesus says, this is the reason I came into the world, to tell you the truth. Truth has gotten a bad rap. Truth is something that is individualized now in our culture, in our day and age. When somebody talks about truth, they usually talk about my truth, and they mean for them personally. And they're happy to hear your truth as long as you don't tell them your truth is definitive or objective. And Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm the objective truth. When I used to teach Bible classes, I would describe truth, define it this way, as uh, four things. Transcendent, fundamental, spiritual, reality. Because that's who Jesus is. He transcends everything. He is from before the creation even. And he is foundational. He is essential to our life and well-being. Okay? And he is spiritual. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And then he's also real in flesh and blood. We can, um, we can hold him and, and his disciples touch him, right? And he invites Thomas to put his hand in his wounds. That's who speaks the truth. Not somebody who's temporal, not somebody who's back and forth and is making a decision every day about what's right and what's wrong and then changing it the next day. Or they, they have their own truth, but when they interact with other people, they realize they can't maintain it because other people have different truths. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus is the truth, and we need that. We need a prophet. And we also need a priest. Because the power that Jesus wants to give us to change is the salvific power. It's the redemptive power. It's the power that changes our hearts. So he doesn't, he doesn't care. I mean, he says specifically, don't worry about those physical things. If you trust in God, he will clothe you more splendidly than he clothed Solomon. Solomon, who's been dressed like no other king, right, or prince has ever been dressed, uh, is not as glorious as the flowers. If God makes the flowers, certainly he can take care of you. So don't worry about those things. Worry about your heart and your soul because that is the most important thing. It, it doesn't profit you to gain the world if you lose your soul. So we need a priest. These are roles that God set in place as important because he knows that we need all of them. He knows that we cannot change without a king and without a prophet and without a priest. And so he sends his son, Jesus, to do all of these things perfectly. And this doesn't make as much sense to us. It's not as important to us because we don't live in a, uh, a system with kings and prophets and priests so named. But we have these roles in our society. We have people who are kings and leaders of government. We have people who are prophets and claim to speak the truth. And we have people who are priests and claim to bring us close to the divine. And often, we're trying to fill all of those roles for ourselves. We're trying to be the king of our own little world and speak our own truth into the world and say that whatever, you know, whatever closeness we need to have with God, we're just going to achieve that by ourselves. So we're often trying to fill all those roles and Jesus says, no, let me do it. Because that's what's happening when we know that he is the power to change and yet we don't see change. Is we're trying to fill all those roles that Jesus himself wants to fill. So here's what this looks like. To find power to change, we need to recognize our need of Jesus and submit our will to his. And I want to read to you now from 2 Corinthians how Paul deals with this. Because Paul struggles, like we all struggle, with knowing what is uh, the right way to submit 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, I must go on boasting, starting in verse 1. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I'll boast, but my own beha- on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That whole opening section there in chapter 12 about a man being caught up to heaven, Paul is describing what could be or should be maybe even recognized as sort of the height of spiritual um, experience. Here's a person who's caught up to heaven and hears things from God that are perhaps too wonderful even uh, to share. And I could boast about that. That's a pretty amazing spiritual experience. But because I was tempted in that, in my knowledge about that, to become conceited, God reminded me that I need his strength. I need him to be my king. I need him to speak the truth into my life. I need him to mediate between me and God because I can't do those things. And so he says, here's what you need to the Corinthians. Here's what we need from Paul. Our strength is useless. Christ's strength is essential. The sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. When I'm weak, I'm strong. If we want to find power to change, we have to be willing to submit unto death, just like Jesus. Now, Jesus is not going to call all of us to physical death for our faith, but he is going to call us to submit more and more, day by day, year by year. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should expect that it will get harder as it goes, in one sense, because you will be facing more of these persecutions and hardships, but also it will get easier as it goes because you'll be learning daily what it means for your power, right, to come from Christ, for your weakness to result in his strength. That's what we're called to. That's what he desires for us. He never wanted any other king but himself. So if we put ourselves in opposition to him, we should expect opposition. And if we put ourselves in submission to him, we should expect power. That's what he designed. We have communion today. And uh, if you have a communion cup, pull those out. If you don't, the ushers are here and they can help you out. Raise your hand and they'll bring one to you. For those of you who know the story of Jesus, it is right, it is right after the Last Supper that Jesus has this conversation with Pilate that we just went through. It's right after the Last Supper. And so Jesus has just had this conversation with his disciples where he says, I'm the body and I'm the blood. And now he's about to die. So we know that it's on his mind, right? The last part of the conversation that Jesus had there in chapter 19, that's after he's been flogged. It's after he's been scourged and he's got the crown of thorns on his head. He knows he's about to die. And still, he's not concerned with himself. He's concerned with Pilate. And he's talking to Pilate about his soul. We don't know what happens to Pilate. 
in scripture, it's not clear what happens to Pilate. Tradition and history tell us a couple of different things. There's a church historian whose name is Eusebius, and he says that Pilate committed suicide for one of two reasons. <clears throat> Either because he became convicted that he'd done the wrong thing in, in having Jesus executed, or because um, some uprisings that happened in Judea following Jesus' death, not specifically his followers, but um, Eusebius says Pilate committed suicide. And the Western tradition, the Western Europe tradition, is that Pilate is just a villain. He was just a bad guy. He made bad choices. He condemned Jesus to die. There were all these passion plays in the medieval uh, time, in medieval ages when uh, many people were illiterate, and so they would put on these plays for people, right, to describe what was good and what was evil. And Pilate was always the villain in Western Europe. But in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, in the Egyptian um, Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church, Ethiopian Church, Pilate is a hero. He's in fact venerated as a saint because in their tradition, he comes to know Jesus and he becomes uh, a proponent of the faith. And so they venerate him as a saint in that tradition. We don't know which is true. But we do know that Jesus was concerned about his soul even when Jesus had just spoken to his disciples and said, I'm about to die. Even when Jesus was standing there with a crown of thorns and knew he was about to be crucified, he's still talking to Pilate about his soul. So that's the priority that Jesus has. That's not our priority. But that's the priority he has. So that's what he's thinking about when he takes the bread. Scripture says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Scripture says in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For this cup, right, by this cup, you proclaim my death until I come. This is the new covenant in my blood. You proclaim my death until I come again. Do this in remembrance of me. This is God's gift to us, Himself. This is the power to change that we need. We are not looking to change what he wants us to change, but he wants us to change everything and be in complete and total submission to him. And so he's offering that to us. That's what we have in him if we accept this gift. We pray with me? God, I praise you and thank you for the gift of your son. I praise you and thank you that you have given us what we could not get for ourselves. Lord, we choose our own kingdoms and we choose our own truth and we choose uh, the priorities that we have for ourselves which are not yours. Lord, your kingdom is everlasting and is good and seeks our salvation and redemption. Lord, I pray that we would forgive those uh, just as we have been forgiven, those who have sinned against us. Lord, help us to forgive them. Help us to forgive and have a mind like you, Lord, who at the doorstep of your execution we're thinking about saving others and we're trying to reach them. Lord, I pray that we would be the same. Keep us from building kingdoms in opposition to yours. Lord, help us to be in submission to you. I pray that your power would be made perfect in our weakness. In your name, Jesus. Amen.